When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 16th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The vast majority of people in Northern Ireland support the Northern Ireland Protocol, a fact that appears to have eluded the British government. The polling I've seen uh, suggests that uh, the majority of people, particularly businesses, I mean, that, that's the, my, my, the people I speak to a lot, business operators, are saying that the protocol is difficult. It has impeded um, certainly the, the flow of trade uh, from uh, England, the UK, to Northern Ireland. I mean, Great Britain, sorry, I should say, to Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland, of course, is as much a part of the UK as Cornwall or um, uh, Carlisle. But uh, it, they're saying it isn't working. And if it isn't working, we've got to be pragmatic. We've got to say, look at the protocol and say, why isn't it working? And if need be, uh, we should be acting unilaterally. This is Kwasi Kwarteng, the UK's Secretary of State for Business, speaking to the BBC Sunday morning in one of a number of interviews yesterday, speaking about the protocol on behalf of the British government. Kwarteng appeared to be giving a voice to the politics of unionists. It's not playing politics at all. If you look at where we are with Northern Ireland, we've got a a system, an executive that hasn't uh, met for two and a half months. We've got people who have raised the protocol again and again. We haven't uh, raised this uh, as a primary issue. People on the ground, people in Northern Ireland are raising this as a matter of concern. And it's absolutely our uh, duty... Uh, to see what we can do to improve it. And that's what we're doing. The minister speaking uh, to the BBC over on Sky, Irish government minister Simon Coveney told Sophie Ridge a different story about the level of support that there is for the protocol in the north. Let's not forget, this is not only about unionism. Of course, it needs to be partly about unionism. But a majority of people in Northern Ireland voted against Brexit and would vote against Brexit again in the morning if it was put to them. A majority of people in Northern Ireland are in favour of the protocol because they see that it does a reasonable job to manage the disruption of Brexit in, in the Irish circumstances. There is a minority, a large minority within unionism who are unhappy with the protocol. There are solutions that we can put in place that can ease that concern. And that's what we need to focus on doing together, as opposed to the British government acting on its own, illegally, uh, in a way that doesn't reflect majority opinion in Northern Ireland, and perhaps most importantly, sends a message to the world that this British government, when it suits them, will set aside international law. 
That's uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs and uh, Defence, Simon Coveney. He wasn't mincing his words when he spoke to Sky News yesterday. Let's speak now to Karen Coleman, editor with Europower Radio, which reports from the European Parliament for Irish radio stations. Good morning to you, Karen, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, the British Prime Minister will be in Northern Ireland today. He'll hear many different opinions on uh, the protocol. I take it Boris Johnson uh, won't confuse uh, the status of Northern Ireland and won't make the same mistake as Minister made earlier on uh, in uh, thinking that uh, perhaps it, it wasn't part of the United Kingdom. Yes, I know. I mean, it's extraordinary sometimes when you hear about some of the things that are being said. I mean, Johnson is expected to threaten, I think, new measures on the protocol. But at the same time, he's been writing in the Belfast Telegraph. He also seems to be, you know open still to hearing what the EU has to say. Um, And I think this morning in the Telegraph, he was saying that the protocol was out of date, that it didn't reflect the reality of a post-COVID era and with the the Ukrainian war as well and the cost of living crisis. So I think maybe mixed signals from Boris Johnson Mm. today on the protocol and whether the UK is definitely going to disapply elements of it, which of course has caused horror within EU circles. Um, so it will be interesting to hear him fully to see what he does come out with today. It's possible he'll annoy everybody, isn't it? Uh, because uh, the Prime Minister will say that the protocol doesn't need to be scrapped, but it does need to be fundamentally altered regardless of whether the European Union agrees. That will be music to the ears of the Unionists, but they won't like the pledges that he's made in that article in the Belfast Telegraph uh, this morning to legislate within weeks for abortion and an Irish Language Act and the Troubles Amnesty. Yes, of course, these are the other issues that he is going to discuss in the light of the Northern Ireland Assembly elections with the various political um, leaders and politicians today, those outstanding issues that are causing so much angst as well in Northern Ireland. And you're right, I mean, issues about enabling abortion there will cause um, uh, problems for some of the communities in Northern Ireland. But I suppose from a European perspective, um, especially from Brussels watching today, it'll be very interesting to see whether he is going to come out strong about threatening now to disapply elements of the protocol and the implications of that. Um, The EU continues to say that unilateral action will not be accepted um, and that the protocol will not be changed. That's the line they continue to say. Marish Shevkovic uh, was attending the first meeting of the EU-UK new parliamentary assembly that has been set up with representatives from the European Parliament and from Westminster. He addressed that assembly last week in Brussels and, and repeated the same message that uh, unilateral action on the protocol and disapplying parts of it will just not be acceptable. So the EU doesn't appear to be changing its stance on that. Why do you think Boris Johnson wants to rip up the agreement he brokered? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a very big question, uh, Michael. Um, of course, we know that there are, you know, from the DUP's perspective, they are very unhappy with 
elements of the protocol with the checks on goods coming from Britain into Northern Ireland. Mm. They don't want that. They see it as affecting Northern Ireland's constitutional position within the UK. Boris Johnson, of course, has to appease their concerns as well because he's uh, dependent on some of them. And, um, and of course, this is the big conundrum. He supported the Northern Ireland Protocol originally when it was being brokered. Um, and, you know, he was a supporter of Brexit. And this is the harsh reality of Brexit, that there mm. will be these checks. I mean, this is the reality of the Brexit agreement that now that vote was in 2016. Um, and, it, and it's a very bitter pill to swallow, obviously, mm. for some uh, people in Northern Ireland. And it's interesting, the piece earlier about business leaders, um, because I was reading a piece in The Guardian this morning that yep. was quoting a pri- elements of or, or quoting sources connected with this private letter that apparently was written by business leaders um, urging Boris Johnson not to take unilateral mm. action. And in fact, this Brexit, uh, this group represents some 14 business bodies. Um, and they, from, you know, if you were to believe that perspective, uh, they don't believe that what they call this nuclear op- option should be taken. So there are clearly business groups in Northern Ireland who do not believe in, in Boris Johnson pursuing the um, uh, disapplying mm. parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol, if that is indeed what they go ahead with, as expected this week. And, and why would they? Because they've the best of both worlds uh, as such, Karen. Uh, and it, it was quite a- amazing to hear some of uh, the things uh, that uh, the Secretary uh, for Business, Kwasi Kwarteng, was saying in his interviews yesterday, speaking on behalf of the British government uh, about Northern Ireland. He didn't seem to know much uh, about Northern Ireland. Uh, and uh, it wasn't just that Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. Uh, he made that statement about business, as you say. Uh, and he also didn't seem to have any understanding of the politics of how the Assembly uh, uh, will be made up following on from uh, the last election uh, and seem to be completely out of touch with the situation. And when you put all of this together, you have to wonder, uh, going back to that other question about why Boris Johnson wants to rip up the agreement he, he brokered, if it has anything to do with Northern Ireland or if it has anything to do with the UK's relationship with Ireland or the European Union for that matter, or if it's just to do with the politics of the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom. Well, of course, I mean, there are no doubt elements in all of those things that you mentioned that are tied up with this. And it is extraordinary when you hear senior political people um, say things that suggest they just don't understand the way Northern Ireland works. And it's not amusing when that happens. It's incredibly serious because of the instability it may cause to a very fragile, frankly, at times, peace process peace agreement in Northern Ireland and they should acquaint themselves properly with how Northern Ireland works it's so it's such a sensitive region it's it you know something like destabilizing the protocol um, can cause further problems there um, and you know when when they express frankly sometimes ignorance of what is happening in Northern Ireland and the way it works, it is, it is, it is really gobsmacking at times. But they have to be able to understand that this is what this is the reality of Brexit, and the protocol has to be worked on so it can work for people. But there is no doubt it is causing problems 
for certain people in whether they're trading in goods between Britain and Northern Ireland, trying to bring mm. goods in and all the rest of it. It is causing problems. And, you know, one would hope that they will be able to continue the discussions. One of the things that Mara Shevkovich said during that parliamentary assembly meeting last week was that he said something along the lines of that there had been no engagement at all, no meaningful engagement over the last few months with the UK Brexit side. Um, so it, it, it sounded from what he was saying was that they really aren't engaging in any meaningful way to try to resolve these issues, mm. which of course is a concern because um, they need to try and see can they get around the problems with the checks on the goods while at the same time you know, ensuring that they don't breach um, the EU single market rules mm. and regulations. So and, and if they do negotiate, the Taoiseach has been saying uh, that uh, there is a landing zone uh, that is possible. They can get a, an agreement that will suit all, but that's only if they do negotiate. If they don't negotiate and the British government quite possibly as early as this week rips up the Northern Ireland Protocol, what then do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that is the anticipated event that's going to happen this week, that the, this, this bill um, to disapply parts of the protocol will be published. Now it will be, uh, you know, a bill that would have to go through the whole process of going through Westminster, and, and that wouldn't be an easy process either. Um, and the EU is, they're saying that, the protocol has to stay as is. Now, Boris Johnson is also talking about keeping the channel of communication open. I mean, I think the EU will, 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 will try hard to try and see if there are ways in which they can meet some of the British needs without breaching the EU single market rules. On the other hand, if it becomes very difficult in that sense and if the UK are seen to be suggesting stuff that just isn't feasible then there is always the danger that the uh, trade and cooperation agreement which is the trade agreement between the UK and the EU will um, maybe come unstuck and that the EU may start to threaten to um, maybe stop that or, or certainly, you know, maybe impose some kind of trade sanctions against the UK. So there's a lot of road to go yet with this. Um, but the EU keeps saying the, the protocol cannot, it is as it is. But that's not to say that maybe they can find ways around trying to see if they can at, you know, at least appease some of the, the, the concerns people have in Northern Ireland and uh, the rest of, of the UK and see if there are ways around that. OK, Karen, we'll leave there for the moment. Uh, it's going to be a, a long and interesting day, I think. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. That's Karen Coleman, who's uh, the editor with Europarl Radio, which reports from the European Parliament for Irish radio stations. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. The deal we've done with the EU is a brilliant deal and it allows us to do all the things that Brexit was about. So it's about taking back control of our borders, money, laws, but unlike the previous arrangements, it allows the whole of the UK to come out of the EU, including Northern Ireland, and the only checks that there would be would be if something was coming from GB via Northern Ireland and was going on to the Republic, then there might be checks at 
the border into Northern Ireland. Right, that's Boris Johnson speaking about uh, the brilliant deal that he brokered, which included uh, the Northern Ireland uh, protocol. Uh, Sophie Ridge took out that clip on Sky News yesterday, and I think it probably would sound very amusing if it wasn't as serious as it is. Let's speak to Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin TD for Cavan Monaghan. Uh, a very good morning to you, Matt Carthy, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. What did you hear there? Was that a Prime Minister who didn't understand the deal that he agreed. Good morning, Michael, and to your listeners. Well, it's the words and the utterances of a political leader that simply can't be trusted. Um, Boris Johnson, I believe, understood what the protocol meant. I think certainly it was the subject of much debate. If you remember, there was previously um, a, a, a different mechanism within the withdrawal agreement um, that Theresa May and others had been involved in negotiating that was called the backstop, um, which essentially would have meant that there were no checks or balances or border controls unless and until there was any divergence between British and EU um, policy in terms of trade and importation and standards or whatever the case may be. Boris Johnson managed to um, use opposition to that to position himself into number 10 Downing Street to become the British Prime Minister. And since that time, he has been playing political games and using Ireland essentially as a pawn. And unfortunately, he has found far too willing uh, w- um, willing players in mm. the form of the representatives of political unionism. Right, and playing... Northern Ireland as a pawn is an interesting way of putting it. Is there any interest in the best interest of Northern Ireland? Oh, I don't believe so. Not from Boris Johnson or the Tory government. I think if you consider where what the protocol did, it wasn't perfect. Absolutely not. Um, we always indicated, and it was always our position, that any divergence between trade and relationships between the EU and uh, and Britain was going to co- be problematic for Ireland, regardless of you know the implications north south, because um, Britain remains our largest trading partner and stands between mm. us and the rest of Europe. But the difficulty was that all of the problems that Brexit presented were multifaceted because of the fact that we're a partitioned island, we're a small country that is operating now with one part inside the EU and one part outside, and that had the potential to be economically catastrophic and there were some who advocated for that type of scenario again within political unionism and within parts of the uh, within parts of the hardline ultra um, within the Tory establishment they saw Brexit as an opportunity to reinforce the border in Ireland regardless of the economic consequences thankfully the vast majority of people recognize that and to this day support the protocol which allows the north to have access to both the EU and to the British market. Um, The difficulties are because in terms of some goods coming from Britain into the North. um, And Mm. would it be better if those checks weren't there? Absolutely. Um, But the reasons they're there is because of Brexit. And now we have a situation where essentially a British government is threatening to unilaterally either disengage from the withdrawal agreement or to disapply um, elements of the protocol. Because the brilliant deal doesn't seem to be as brilliant as uh, they thought it was uh, when uh, they drafted it and agreed it. The brilliant Mm. deal wasn't Mm. brilliant Mm. and it wasn't perfect, Mm. but it was the least worst scenario and it is brilliant for all of those jobs that are still in place in the north and for all of those new jobs Mm. that have been created, particularly in the border region, precisely because the north has... 
um, access to both the EU and the, and the British market. So the protocol is absolutely, um, as it stands, the best case scenario and is the, um, the option that is most favoured by a vast majority of people in the north, the vast majority of businesses, farmers, any people who operate on an international trading um, level and all of the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands probably jobs that de- depend on them. So what is essentially in a place due to, I suppose, um, a, a position that is hard to understand within particularly the DUP and others within unionism that has now been uh, now been embraced by the Tories who see an opportunity to have another um, another foul row with um, Brussels um, to distract from their own domestic problems. And we all know how this ends because this story has happened um, thousands of times in our history. When it suits the British government to simply cast aside unionism or any other mm. element of Irish political opinion, um, if that's what's in their own um, strategic political interest, they will do it in a heartbeat. Can I play a, another clip uh, that, like uh, the last one, would be amusing if it wasn't as serious as it is? Because there were a couple of big interviews on uh, British television yesterday ahead of this very important week, which could see the British government take unilateral action. And the minister that the British government put out for the interviews yesterday was Quasi Quarteng. Uh, we heard him earlier on talk about how he believed that the majority of people in Northern Ireland and businesses in Northern Ireland wanted the protocol to be dropped or seriously amended as the case may be. He, he made those comments uh, to the BBC. He, he was also speaking uh, to Sky and uh, he made some interesting comments after the interview with the BBC where he had to correct himself and state that Northern Ireland was part of the United Kingdom. Uh, But in this particular clip with Sky, he didn't seem to have any real understanding about the politics of Northern Ireland. So I'm not quite sure you're right. I mean, the majority of people on the the Assembly are uh, essentially on on the Unionist side. So they they broadly share uh, what the DUP are thinking. Sorry, the majority... On the assembly from the union. So, 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 the, so you're right. Sinn Féin has a, the reason why Sinn Féin are the first minister is because they got a plurality. They got they got more seats than anyone else, but they don't have a majority. So, so a lot of the people actually, uh, and they've said this. Uh, the no, parties, but not everyone else is unionist. There's other. No, there are. There's an alliance. Parties there's an alliance. Yeah, right. As well, right? Like Sinn Féin. No, so Sinn Féin, and there's the alliance. And then there are the unionist uh, parties, which added together are more than and Sinn Féin. And the SDLP. That's right. That's right. So, but, but it's clear to me that without changes to the protocol, you're not going to get um, a, 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 an assembly. You're not going to get an executive. Okay. And that uh, undermines, the fact you don't get an executive undermines okay. stability. Uh, Matt McCarthy, he, he didn't seem to really have a handle on the uh, political makeup of the assembly, did he? No, and that's not unusual when you're talking about British Tory politicians. The only time that they have any interest in in the north of Ireland or any part of Ireland for that matter is when it serves their um, their own political interests, as I say, and therefore I suppose they have to go through crash courses every now and again and actually then evolve into car crash interviews. Mm. Um, but um, you know, the one thing he's right with, unfortunately, is that um, there that there are parties that are using. Um, the protocol as a mechanism to frustrate the establishment of a... The, conser- the Conservative Party at top of the list, probably. Well, perhaps, but, you know, the, the, mm. I, again, as I say, um, you know, you have a scenario now where 
the uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is te- is saying he wants the Assembly to be back up and running. He wants the executive to be formed, but at the same time, he is facilitating the the lie to, for want of a better word, um, that those who are frustrating the establishment of the um, the executive are um, perpetuating, which is that we can simply, and the British government can simply withdraw from the protocol without any consequences whatsoever, when clearly the protocol is in place for a reason. And the protocol is a direct result mm. of the Brexit that both the DUP and the British Tories, particularly those who are now in power, um, advocated and championed without any consideration for the economic consequences on the part of the Tory government mm. and in spite of knowing the economic consequences on the part of the DUP. All right, Michelle O'Neill will meet uh, the Taoiseach uh, this morning and then uh, Boris Johnson uh, later in the day. Do you think uh, that your leader in the North can convince the British Prime Minister uh, of the error of his ways if he actually is contemplating the nuclear option? Well, I hope that Michelle O'Neill, alongside the vast majority of other parties, again, let's remember a vast majority of those who were elected only a week or so ago um, were absolutely united in their support of the protocol, recognising that some of the challenges and that it would be good if mitigation measures could be put in place for some of those importation challenges um, to be addressed. Um, But I also think there's a very strong role for the Irish government. I think Simon Coveney has been very forceful in terms of um, putting it up to the British government. Mm. I welcome that. And um, that needs to be a united position of the Irish government. This isn't something that we can be in any way equivocal about. For the British government to walk away from international obligations would represent an, an attack on the international rule of law. Only through a joint agreement with the EU can solutions to the problems um, or any concerns um, be, be addressed. So certainly from a Sinn Féin perspective, we will be telling Boris Johnson that unilaterally, unilateral action will deepen political instability, will create economic uncertainty, the last thing that is need, or needed right now, and will actually allow the DUP and others to frustrate political progress even further. All right, we leave it there. Thank you indeed Thank uh, you, for joining us. That's uh, Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin TD for Kevin Monaghan. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you were listening to us a couple of weeks ago, you'd have heard us speaking to the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament about a new coalition, the Cost of Living Coalition, which will be holding a protest outside of Leinster House this week. Apart from the Senior Citizens Parliament, the coalition is made up of many groups and political parties, the UCD Students' Union, the Dublin Council of Trade Unions, the Union of Students in Ireland, Housing and Homeless Coalition, Access for All Ireland, ESB Retired Staff Association, the Rural Ireland Organisation and indeed SPARC uh, which is uh, the group uh, that um, is representing single parents acting for the rights of kids. SPARC. Let's speak uh, to Louise Bayliss. A very good morning to you Louise and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, I take it that the size of the coalition, how many different groups are involved apart from uh, the political parties tells us a, a little bit about how strongly people feel about how difficult it is to make ends meet uh, in uh, the current climate. I, I think it does, Michael. I think it represents that this is impacting on all sectors of society. As you said, there's lone parents in the group, there's students, there's senior citizens. Um, there's, 
you know, this crisis is impacting on many people. So many people are feeling the pinch when they go to the supermarket every week and they see less money, uh, more money going out, should I say. For lone parents, we already were at the end of the road. You know, there was poverty already in our group. There is nowhere left to go for us. So, for instance, um, somebody put up a post, a very innocent post on Facebook recently in our group saying, has any, you know, that very question, has anybody noticed how much shopping has got? And what happened then really surprised me was that there were people came back on and said, no, the shopping hasn't gone up because I have my budget and that's all I can afford. Mm. What's happening is I'm bringing home less food each week. So far, the kids are okay, but I'm going to bed hungry a couple of nights. And that really took my breath away because, of course, all of society has been impacted and, and things are going to look like they're getting worse unless we do something. The other side of it, this story, Michael, I don't know if you saw the report last week, that um, the average wealth in Ireland per household is 198,000. Now, I'm telling you, there's a lot of people going to bed hungry and then you have 198,000. There is, in a society that is that wealthy, there is no excuse for people going to bed hungry. All right, and we'll be hearing later on in the programme how housing has to be made affordable for people who are on €100,000 a year. Uh, but we're not talking about that type of income. But one of the things is you want that incomes will be protected. You want to control energy costs so people don't have that terrible choice of eat or heat. Uh, that's yeah. if they have somewhere to live and making housing affordable, investing in public services are part of uh, the demands uh, that uh, you'll be putting to government, including share the wealth, which I, I take it is that household uh, level of wealth that uh, some people can't uh, subscribe to. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's just that, that very inequality we're talking about, but we're not talking about um, taxing individual households. What we're really talking about is really taxing um, large corporate corporate um, entities that are over here um, availing of the facilities we provide, like good, educated, tax, uh, tax-compliant um, citizens you know, well-educated, good infrastructure. These companies that are over here are going to have to pay their way to have these well-educated young citizens that we produce. And so you're talking about a tax on these multi, you know, these large corporate entities that need to pay their way so that people aren't going hungry. Okay, but uh, you're asking political parties uh, to change their ethos. It is uh, the ethos, uh, I think, of uh, the main political parties in this country to... Uh, invite people to live here and trade here, to set up business here uh, for those reasons. They believe that that's uh, the key to the success of the country. It is the key to the success of the, the country, but it can't be on the back of citizens um, going hungry at night time. We do need companies to come over here and we do provide, as I said, really good infrastructure. We've got, you know, so many of our young people are well educated and we've, we have a safe, secure, stable government. We mightn't agree with everything they say or do, but it's a safe, you know, a stable country. We have a lot to offer these companies, um, and we're, but we have to make sure that they're paying towards it because it's not not sustainable the way it is and you know we're already seeing that they're finding it hard to attract talent into the country not because of low wages or you know but because as you said earlier you alluded to the housing crisis you know that people can't afford rents I mean I think just even just over the weekend there was a caravan park um, advertising 
rents of um, caravan homes for 2400 a month. I mean... <laughs> really? <it's, yeah>. <laughs> Forgive <laughs> me for laughing. I'm sorry. I just... No, I, I hadn't seen that report. No, I just think that's farcical, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it is farcical. But 2400 to live in a trailer park. I mean, it, it, it just... It just is beyond belief. So something has to change. It's it's not sustainable as we're going down. We're going down a very dangerous road. Um, and 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 the whole instability of society. If people cannot go to bed and have that security, we've always had um, a social a social yeah. welfare network. I've always pushed for it to have a little bit higher, and you know that people have a minimum essential standard of living. I would always still advocate for that. But when but things have gotten beyond looking for that. We're now literally looking to stop children going hungry. They, you know, it's it's unsustainable the way we're going. And I suppose lone parents are at the bottom of the heap and we see it, the raw end and the sharp end. And, mm. and I'm not saying every lone parent because I'm not going to bed hungry or neither is my child. But I'm in a group where I see some people are and it's heartbreaking to see that. And I'm listening to, and you know, it has been really eye-opening as well to be part of the coalition because we've been meeting very regularly and listening to other people's stories. And I think that in itself has been eye-opening to see how wide effect the, the impact is having on so many different types of households. You know, mm. even the ESB retired um, retired mm. account, they're, they're not living in poverty, poverty. But then at the same time, he was explaining that they haven't seen, their, their pensions are exactly the same as they were 12 years ago. So that's obviously a major decrease in their standard of living. In a society that's wealthy, that's not, that's, it's not fair. Um, and, and obviously, if they're retired, they've done their 40 years of work and they're entitled yeah. to have a certain standard of living that we would all aspire to when we, we give up work. So it has been an interesting um, dynamic and listening to the students, you know, some of them talking about maybe having to, some students are at risk of having to give up college. Mm. And where does that lead us? If, if we're, we're pitching to external international markets that we have a well-educated force, workforce, and then we can't... Um, we're letting people leave. Yeah. Uh, and you look at the nursing crisis. I mean, yeah. we, we spend four years training nurses to a really high educated standard. And then two years later, they come because the salary is so low. Uh, and it's not that the salary is so low, but the cost of living is so high that it's not, again, it's not sustainable. Well, I, I think it'll be a big protest, given the amount of organisations that are involved in the coalition. Uh, you're going to be at Leinster House on Thursday afternoon, isn't it? Yeah, Thursday at one o'clock. Okay, one o'clock. And, and, and anybody would, would be delighted for anybody to come along, bring your signs, bring anything you can to show how it's impacting on you. Every group is welcome. And we're hoping that as we go along, that more groups will be joining in it to the coalition. As I said, it's a really good working group of people. And it's been interesting sharing the knowledge and hearing the different stories. Okay, Louise, thank you very much indeed. If people do want to join you, as you say, 1pm on Thursday of yes. this week at the gates of the And I could just say as yeah. well, there's a Facebook page and Twitter that they can contact as well if they want to make contact beforehand. Okay, the Cost of Living Coalition, is it? It is, yeah. I haven't seen that. Okay, the Cost of Living Coalition. I'll have a look at that myself later on. Thank you indeed uh, for speaking to us uh, this morning. Louise Bayliss, a spokesperson for Spark, that's uh, the Single Parents Acting for the Rights of Kids group, a member of the Cost of Living Coalition. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the government uh, paused uh, the decision on uh, locating uh, the new maternity hospital, the new National Maternity Hospital on uh, the grounds of St. Vincent's campus for two weeks. Uh, those two weeks will be up at 
the end of this week uh, and it seems as though this is going to be a strange week because today the leaders of the three government parties are to meet to agree locating the hospital at St Vincent's. Uh, meanwhile, as you've been hearing, the St Vincent's Healthcare Group will give some very important evidence, I imagine, to the Oireachtas Health Committee because they'll be able to talk from uh, the perspective of what will be allowed uh, and what will not be allowed uh, and to address the concerns that people have about a religious influence on the day-to-day running of the hospital. Meanwhile, and I'm not sure that today's hearing of the Health Committee and as important as it is, uh, but meanwhile, uh, the um, government will meet tomorrow uh, and it's not clear that that will have any bearing on the decision because it's expected that the government will decide to re- relocate uh, the uh, or to co-locate uh, the new National Maternity Hospital on St Vincent's uh, when the Cabinet meets uh, tomorrow. Let's speak once again to Cresha Lynch, who's the chair of AIMS Ireland. That's the Association for Improvements in the Maternity Services in Ireland. Good morning to you, Cresha, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, there was a lot you wanted to hear uh, over the course of last week. You certainly heard a, a lot. Have you heard enough at this stage or are there questions that you want answered at the health committee today by the St Vincent's Healthcare Group? Well, I think like others, um, I was hoping that my concerns would be uh, alleviated during this two-week uh, transparent review process. But instead, they're, they're more escalating than being uh, relieved, I guess. And, you know, despite everything the government has said so far and everything the minister has said and everything the master of the NMH has said and so far everything that the St. Vincent's Hospital Group has said, people, including myself, do have concerns. I mean, they have concerns from the government point of view because uh, the history there with respect to maternity care has not been uh, as good as we had hoped. Uh, The maternity strategy has not been implemented despite the fact that they said they would do it. Partners are still not in hospitals, despite the fact they said they would do it. Then we have uh, the NMH itself. They are obviously desperate to move, and understandably so. But we have to remember that in 2017, they practically gifted the entire hospital to St. Vincent's. And had there not been an intervention then, we would have had an awful deal altogether. So, you know, can we place our trust in them? And then, of course, we have the new um, St. Vincent's Holdings, which is the, um, some people have described it as the proxy for the Sisters of Charity. The Sisters of Charity signed over all of their shares in St. Vincent's uh, to this new company. And the new company has three directors, um, one of whom uh, is the person that owns McCabe's pharmacies, the chain, the, the large pharmacy chain. So there's been questions raised as to whether there are conflicts of interest and how come this private company, which is now owned by three individuals, is going to be able to determine what happens within this new National Maternity Hospital. So a lot, I think, has come out that perhaps we weren't sure about before. That last point, I think, is the point of contention because the government says they won't be able to determine that it'll be a hospital that is owned and run by the state. Well, you see, that's not entirely true either, because the hospital will be governed by a body of nine people. And and I think the other thing that's worth bearing in mind is that we see the National Maternity Hospital now as an individual entity. You know, it sits there, proud as punch, on Hollis Street, well, facing Merrion Square, if you want the fancy view, but where everybody goes in to have their baby, it's on mm-hmm. Hollis Street. And we see it there, and we see it as this individual entity running itself. It has a board of 100 governors, and those governors are elected. They're elected clinicians. They're elected by the people who 
work there, they understand their staff, they know what they're doing, and it's a voluntary hospital. So that hospital is run and held in trust by that board of 100. We're now going to move into a situation where the National Maternity Hospital would be subsumed into the St. Vincent Hospital group. So that means that there will be a board that runs the new National Maternity Hospital, three of whom, only three of whom, will be elected by the National Maternity Hospital as we know it. The other three will be appointed by the minister and the other three will be appointed by St. Vincent's and St. Vincent's will also appoint the chair. So when we think of how the hospital is run and the balance of power within the hospital, that is going to have a dramatic change. And we've seen in the States that when you have perhaps a very conservative government and they're making appointments, we've seen the way, for example, that abortion care is going to change quite dramatically in the States, in the individual states, because of that very particular viewpoint of the the equivalent of our minister. So with the minister appointing three, with St. Vincent's appointing three, that's a majority of six to three. And I think people have concerns about that. Okay, what about the minister's golden share? Will the minister not be able to insist that if abortion or whatever service uh, is in contention that they're made available in the National Maternity Hospital because they're legally permissible uh, in the state? Yeah, I think that there's been a lot of questions raised about, um, there was a phrase, wasn't there, you know, um, clinically appropriate. And I think that there was quite a lot of uh, discussion about that in the health committee during the last week. And certainly Mr. McGarda, uh, the solicitor that was there, said that it was quite an ambiguous term Mm. and it could lead to unexpected, I'm quoting him now, lead Mm. to unexpected, unwanted and sometimes even uh, perverse interpretations. So I think that what we probably will see is that that term will perhaps be removed. But you see, the issue there always is that the minister cannot determine clinical decisions within hospital settings. I mean, the minister has said that we will have partners in hospitals, but yet we don't. The law provides for abortion in every single one of our maternity units, and yet we have nine out of the 19 not providing it. And they're not providing it because they're putting forward a a Catholic conscientious objection to doing so. Mm. So you could see that that I mean, that's just happening now. <laughs> so you could see that that could always hold sway within a large maternity hospital as well, and especially one that doesn't have clinician control on the board. Even if that term, clinically appropriate, was removed, uh, most lay people wouldn't have ever thought that that could have had the serious and ambiguous consequences that we've been learning about over the course of the last couple of weeks. And the Irish Times is reporting today that it could be deleted from the agreement or further defined. We heard another word last week, a a legal term called a codicil, uh, which would mean that they spell out what is meant when you say clinically appropriate. Uh, In other words, that abortion uh, or sterilisation or IVF or or some of these things uh, that may be uh, opposed uh, because of a Catholic ethos would be made uh, available and that that would not be an exhaustive list. And I I think that, you see, I think it's I think that term should be removed, um, but I think defining it can be tricky as well because I think that you can define that abortion would take place. For example, let's just go with that one because most people are familiar with that and are familiar with the fact that you know we're coming up to the four-year four anniversary of repeal. Um, you know, abortions have always taken place in Ireland, always, but they've taken place when the mother's life was a risk. And abortions on request have not always taken place, and that's the difference. So you would need to really drill down into that so that you're looking at 
the woman's request or the person's request rather than a clinical need to save somebody's life, which is what we've had up till now. I mean, I guess overall, I actually feel that this deal is going to go through and it's not going to be stopped. I don't think it's going to be stopped. But I think that people, including uh, Ivana Bacic, you know, the Mm. leader of the the Labour Party, Mm. including Mary Lou MacDonald, and including quite a large number of other people have raised concerns. Catherine Martin. Exactly. And their concerns are such that they feel that the government has not got us the best deal. Mm. And I think that in time, that is what we will see. We will see that we did not get the best deal. And I think that's why people are angry. And I think that's why people are protesting, because there's like this funny feeling that people have in their gut that despite all of the explanations, despite all the yeah. assurances given, given by the minister, we all feel that somehow this isn't the best deal and somehow we've kind of capitulated because we desperately need a new maternity hospital because mm. we don't want it to drag on and partly because we're being held over a barrel by the St. Vincent's Hospital Group who are threatening to pull out and I think people don't like that. They don't like the fact that we're being kind of held hostage um, by what has effectively up until now been a very Catholic organisation. How do you feel about uh, the way the government has handled this? Uh, Because the government said it it was pausing the decision for two weeks so that it could explain its position to people, but it also said it was going to use that two-week period to listen to people. Uh, Today's meeting of the Health Committee will be one of the most important, I think, Uh, but the leaders are, are, are meeting, as mentioned earlier on, to agree that this goes ahead and the Cabinet is set to do the same tomorrow. Uh, It's very hard to believe that the government was willing to listen as such. Oh, I don't think there was any element of that, really. Um, I think what what we have seen is we have seen more of the detail and some of the small issues have been teased out and some of the small issues perhaps have been open to question and people have been able to make uh, public opinions available. I mean, Dr. Peter Boylan has made a a great statement with respect to all of this within the, the, the health committee and also publicly at the protest on Saturday. But I think that the government were always planning to go ahead And, you know, one can ask, why is that? Do they not want to have the delay? Is there pressure coming on them to try and produce a a new maternity hospital as quickly as possible? And we can understand that because it's been a long time in coming. Um, But, of course, there were always other sites. There was always Taller. And there's been a lot of discussion in the last week as to why are we still going with an inner city campus, which is incredibly difficult to get to. I mean, D4 is not easy to get to if you're living in West Dublin or you're living in South Dublin. It's it's a difficult place. There's very limited parking there. We could have had practically a greenfield site in Tala. More people are having babies and living in the west of Dublin and living in the suburbs of Dublin next to the M50 with direct access to Tala. And yet that option was never taken. And a lot of people are quite asking questions about that too. But and the long and the short of it is um, I, I feel that the process was a little bit more transparent, but it was one of those situations, I think, where we were being informed as to what was going to happen, as to uh, being considered equal partners to have a say in what was going to happen. And I think somebody summed it up the other day. They just said the state and the government and we, with our taxpayer money, are going to pay for a hospital. We're going to build it. We're going to hand it over to SV Holdings and we're going to hope for the best. And that's really not the kind of mantra that you'd like to have for a major investment in a hospital that hopefully is going to last several hundred years. 
Okay, we'll leave it there, Cresha. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining Thanks us once again. Always good to talk to you. That's Cresha uh, Lynch, who's uh, the chair of Ames Ireland. Uh, that's uh, the Association for Improvements in the Maternity Services Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the World Health Organization is calling for regulation on cross-border alcohol marketing. Let's hear a little bit more about this. Una McKinney is uh, the Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland. Good morning to you, Una, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, what is uh, the concern here uh, about cross-border marketing? Is it that if it's cheaper in one jurisdiction that people will travel to get the cheaper booze? Well, no, what, they're, what the WHO, and just to give a, a brief moment of context to this, I mean, what the WHO did its first kind of global strategy in relation to reducing alcohol harm back in 2010. And so that strategy is now in it, finished, and they're about to have a new one launching in this year in June. And so this report is a technical report which feeds into that process to inform, uh, I suppose, some of the more uh, clearer measures for member states. And so what they're saying in this technical report is that, you know, they're deeply concerned about the level of marketing of alcohol and the impact that it has in particular on children and in particularly on those who are heavy users and those in recovery. And so what they're identifying at a global level is that cross-border marketing. So as we know, there's only about 10 global alcohol corporations, well, a bit more, but mm-hmm. the 10 major ones dominate the market. And so advertising campaigns are now largely transnational. You know, they may, may emanate in South Africa, they may emanate in America, they may emanate in the UK, wherever. But they tend to be across all borders. And this is particularly impacting on in, in the context of social media. So we see a lot of material that is not produced in a member state, but is actually produced in another place. And so is trans, you know, transmarketed across all sorts of markets mm, and mm. all sorts of people. And so they're concerned about that. And what they're, what they're really saying, I suppose, about that is that what's needed is a bit like what happened with tobacco. So what happened with tobacco at the, in the early part of this century is that the WHO forged what was called a framework convention on tobacco. And that enabled member states across the world to agree on what was now known as the marketing measures on tobacco. So we, you know, in every country in the world, it's largely the same when it comes to tobacco marketing. Mm. So there's no advertising, there's no sponsorship, there's no uh, exposure to children, etc. And so what what they're arguing for in this particular paper is that something similar needs now to be put in place for alcohol. Right. And do you think that it would have an impact on people's consumption? Oh, yeah, there's no question about it. And and in the context of tobacco, it's one of the profound measures that took place that has driven tobacco use down Mm. across the world. And, of course, like, why are they doing this? Well, obviously, millions of people are dying because of tobacco. And the same is about three million people dying because of alcohol. These are largely preventable deaths. And so if you can curb the major stimulus around the demand for alcohol, you have an opportunity to reduce alcohol use. And so if you reduce alcohol use, as we've discussed before, you know, the main main driver is to try and reduce that use and therefore improve the public health outcomes. Okay, but we are drinking less, aren't we? Yes, and that's because, you know, I think that over the last decade we would have seen a significant effort by the state in particular uh, to try and encourage people to drink less and obviously help 
improve people's awareness that the actual risk attached to using alcohol is quite significant. And that's, that's still a challenge. That's still a work in progress. Uh, we need to continue on with some of the measures that we have implemented and passed in our own country uh, to try and improve that landscape. But I think, yes, there is, I think there's definitely tentative signs that we're beginning to see that some of the measures over the last three years are making some difference. And I think it's catching a bit of a, a bit of a zeitgeist where people are actually beginning to say, you know, hang on a second, maybe we do need to rethink some of this alcohol use. And we still have a journey to go on that. You know, we're we're still drinking, you know, 30, 35%, even a, way above what our lowest guidelines uh, that the Department of Health and the HSE would have for people who use alcohol. So we, yeah, we have a journey to, to go, but it is important to recognise that there is some progress being made. Okay. Uh, and you believe, uh, because I see that you're writing about it in uh, The Sun today, that uh, people are uh, looking at how much uh, they drink and that they're reassessing how much they drink. Yeah, I think that, you know, we would, I think we probably would have spoken in the past about what had occurred during the uh, the whole period, uh, certainly the early year of, of COVID. And I think it was abundantly clear that what had happened was that the level of alcohol which was used in the on-trade premises had, had largely been brought home into our, into our houses. And that had, that had an impact. And there's no question that we can see that in the data that people were drinking more at home. Um, and I think that that has been a bit of a catalyst for people to say, God, I really am drinking too much and I really am taking too much of this stuff. And now it's really intimate and personal because when we drink in a pub, of course, it's a much different engagement. It's a much different experience. We have a social dimension to that. We have friendships. We have all sorts of things that go with that. And so we don't really contextualize it in 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 the way that we would around what's the harm. But when we're doing that at home, the privacy of our own place and the intimacy of our own place, I think people have, you know, you know, begun to reassess what is a, 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 a perhaps a, 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 a sort of a temporary mm. lifestyle that has become a bit of a permanent habit. And that is, I think, driving people's reconsideration uh, and recalibration of what it is that they're going to put uh, into their bodies in relation to alcohol. Because okay. they know, they now know that alcohol is a really dangerous substance and it mm. is causing significant levels of physical and mental health uh, difficulties. And so if we want to address those, I'm afraid the only solution is that we have to drink less of it. But despite more people drinking at home and drinking more at home for that matter, uh, overall people are, are drinking less. Oh yeah, I think there's 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 evidence that would show that there was, um, in 2020 we, we would have seen around a 6% reduction and then last year again we would have seen the 47 Now obviously the caveat there is that as I explained in the in the piece in the sun, is that obviously the the, the the licensed premises were largely in 2020 closed and in 2021 restricted. So there was very little uh, drinking being done in licensed premises. Mm. And in normal course of events, a third of what we drink is 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 done on on trade premises like pubs and clubs and restaurants. So you know we would have expected to see a much greater shift. Mm. But obviously we didn't because what happened was people purchased that in the off-trade and brought it home rather than going to the park. Okay, uh, But for, I think that is moving now. All right. I think but, that is moving back now. Well, for, for, for people listening to us uh, this morning, um, if... Uh, you believe uh, that uh, they should be reflecting on how much they drink. Uh, at what stage uh, should they be doing that? Uh, if 
there's uh, people who um, drink every week. Uh, should they be Ugh. looking at, at or, or when should you be asking yourself, am I drinking too much? You should be asking yourself that question if you find that you're in any way has been impacted by alcohol. Like, is it the case that you are finding that perhaps you, you haven't been able to go to work or perhaps you haven't been able to do your work or perhaps been able to go to college uh, maybe as effectively as you should have done? Do you find that perhaps you're drinking more than other people? Um, do you find that you're drinking maybe every day or every second day even? Um, these 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 are act- activities that begin to show signs that you're having some difficulty with alcohol, or, or that alcohol is impinging on your uh, lifestyle and on your your everyday activities. And so they're the triggers. I mean, the again, the measure of of what is an alcohol use disorder is like it's a spectrum. So you 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 have mild and moderate and severe. And people who are in severe alcohol use disorders are people who have dependency issues. But there are two stages before that. Um, and so, you know, some of those triggers that I just outlined are ones that you have to consider. Um, because, again, the, the low-risk guidelines for a man is only 17 standard drinks a week with at least two or three days free from alcohol. Now, people would say, well, God, that's very little alcohol. But that that is that is determined on the basis of how much that's going to impact your health. And for a woman, that's only 11 standard drinks. Um, so that's essentially like 11 relatively small glasses of wine in a week with three days at least uh, mm. free from alcohol. So Less than two can, bottles of wine a week. Uh, just to uh, explain that to people or uh, every pint is uh, two units. So Yeah, uh, well, in, of, in, a, in a bottle of wine, yeah. there's, uh, there's seven standard drinks, essentially, right. you know. Mm. So um, it's a bottle for a woman. It's a big, big bottle and a half over a mm. week, essentially, you know. Okay. Um, so... But and that's 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 what's called a low risk engagement. Obviously, in the context of other matters relating to your health, it may be actually significantly less than that is better for you. But right. in the context of what we're what we're trying to aim to get to a population to, that's the target. The target is to get people who are drinking currently off, often too much, too often, uh, to a point whereby they're at least understanding what the risk is and try to contain themselves within that low-risk engagement. Okay, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Una McKinney is the Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland. Now, if you are immunocompromised or if you're over the age of 65, you may be hoping to get a booster, booster COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, There may be the opportunity for you to do that tomorrow. Let's uh, speak to Jill Stout, who's the practice manager at number 47 Medical Practice on Fair Street in Drogheda. Good morning to you, Jill, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, You have a clinic for this purpose tomorrow. We do indeed, Michael. Yes, thanks for having me on. Yes, we have uh, starting from 9 o'clock tomorrow morning at 47 Fair Street. And it's not just for our own patients. We're reaching out to everybody over 65 um, who needs their their, uh, second booster. Uh, Do they need an appointment? We have appointment times that are available and they can uh, email us. Um, I can give you the email address or they can just give us a call and book it in or they can just arrive. So once they have their PPS number with them, um, they can arrive up to the clinic between 9 and 12 tomorrow. Okay, and what's the email address, please? Info at 47medicalpractice.ie Okay, info at 47medicalpractice.ie Thank yeah. you very much indeed, Jill.
Cheers. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. That's uh, Jill Stout, uh, the practice manager at number 47 Medical Practice on Fair Street in Drogheda. Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks to Seamus and Dundalk, who was on the phone to us uh, today. Seamus says, I don't think Boris Johnson realises how quickly things could kick off in uh, the North again. Tensions are always simmering in the background. The protocol was put there for a reason and it took a long time to negotiate. Thanks uh, for that, Seamus. Uh, maybe uh, Boris Johnson should be reminded that it was he who negotiated it for that matter. Paddy Duffy says uh, there is only one certainty. Boris will do what he thinks is best for Boris and keeps him in number 10 no matter what the consequences for anyone else is Paddy says thank you for your text to the programme today now Ireland's school population has increased by almost 6,000 the Irish Independent reports today that there's 5,843 students in school than ordinarily would be the case Uh, they're Uh, Ukrainian refugees, 3,968 in primary schools, 1,875 in post-primary schools. In County Meath, there's 142 children extra in primary schools, 31 extra in secondary schools, 82 extra in secondary schools in Louth and 97 more in primary schools. Let's uh, speak to Maura Layden, Education and Research Officer with uh, the Association of Secondary School Teachers in Ireland and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, I take it uh, with these children arriving into schools uh, there are new challenges uh, that you uh, and your members are being faced with. Is uh, the school system able to cope with uh, these additional numbers? Um, well, certainly, the, the, if, we, if we don't use the word system, we use the word teachers and people and communities. They are coping magnificently. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they have opened their doors and indeed their hearts to the Ukrainian students. And it's probably important to point out that, um, you know, the Irish school system is, has, has developed quite a lot of experience, indeed expertise, in dealing with um, refugee children, children in direct provision, unaccompanied minors, and most recently, prior to the Ukrainian um, situation, uh, children from Syria. But I suppose, really, you're, you're quite right in one way. The, 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 the size of the uh, displacement of the Ukrainian population is unprecedented. Uh, I was reading some UNICEF uh, figures recently, and they are basically saying that um, it is almost um, two-thirds of the, uh, what do you call it, two-thirds of all children in, U- in Ukraine have been displaced from their homes. Mm. Many of those children are making their over the borders. So it is really, in one way, the system is able to cope because it has experience of former refugees and asylum seekers. On the other hand, it's the sheer numbers and the rapidity with which this is happening that will can possibly lead to system strain. But at the moment, I think if the humanitarian impulse is the strongest. Mm, well, that's fantastic. It, it really is. Uh, what about the challenges, though, uh, in meeting uh, that humanitarian response? Is language a problem? Absolutely. And indeed, it's, it's funny you're, you're talking to me this morning. I'm just drafting up a submission from the ASTI to the Joint Oireachtas Committee on education on, on this topic. Uh, and uh, one of the areas about language support in our schools is that um, language, uh, well, there's two dimensions to it. First of all, uh, um, you, you only get a language support uh, teacher if you actually have the students, which makes sense. 
But the problem is there was a cap uh, as part of the austerity package in budget 2009, and one hates going back to the past, but we do need to know what the reality is before we talk about what we need. So in 2009, the austerity budget said there's a cap of two teachers, two uh, language support teachers per school. And if you have more than that, you can make a, you can get a concessionary post. So essentially, it's that, it's that model that's currently being used, whereby the Department of Education has fast-tracked the concessionary post application process. So schools are getting the language support teachers, but it's a bit of an ad hoc response in the sense that uh, um, while the department is fast-tracking the applications that are turned over maybe within 48 hours, the problem is do we have enough teachers in the system who have this highly professional training around language support, particularly language support where a huge dimension of it would be um, psychological support and, and, and um, not so much counselling, mm. but shall we say, understanding the vulnerability, but also the strengths that these uh, uh, people bring with them, you know. So that is the real problem, I think, going into the future, is that we, we, we have to get over this concessionary model mm. and start building it into the system, you know. And, and are you talking about people who are, are fluent in Ukrainian or Russian or something like that? Uh, well, a lot of the language support teachers would be uh, Irish teachers who would mm. assist, who would have the skills to assist students in understanding uh, uh, grammar, but also the, in, in terms of understanding grammar and the language, mm. they would be using the textbooks. They're not, they wouldn't be using something that's outside the curriculum. Uh, uh, but they so, wouldn't necessarily speak Ukrainian or Russian no, themselves. No, no, no. Now, I know that as, pass, mm. as part of the emergency response, and mm. this is what we're in at the moment, yeah. contingency and emergency in terms of the school system. Uh, um, and it's a good job the summer is coming because it will give mm. the system time to be on a, on a better footing. But what's also happening is that many of the um, adults who are who have either family members or who are accompanying these children, they also are being uh, um, uh, working in the schools alongside the teachers right. to support the language skills of students. Okay. But again, it's ad hoc, you mm. know. Uh, and just to understand, you're talking about children who can speak English, uh, and this is uh, a language support to help them with their English. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. So quite often they, no, not quite often, in the main, they would be mm. Ukrainian citizens who are bilingual in English. Are, are you seeing students who don't have English? Oh, well, there's quite a lot of them who don't have English. Right. Uh, and so what's happening in those circumstances is that a Ukrainian a- adult who has uh, yeah. English language, they will come in to the, and maybe sit with the child in the class or the children in the classroom and help translate, etc., so, and that's really good because the child has a Ukrainian um, uh, language beside them and they're also mm. getting help with the English. But I suppose the point I'm making, and I'm going to be a bit yeah. technical, this is an emergency response. Those, te- those adults are not getting paid, mm. for example. Yeah. So in order to be paid by the Department of Education to be a teacher, you have to be a registered teacher. To be a registered teacher, you've got to be a qualified teacher, etc. So there's a lot of bureaucratic potential mm. hurdles into the future. And guard vetted to work in a school, I think. That, that's absolutely it. Well, that actually has been one of the, I suppose, hidden success stories, and I'm a great believer in giving credit for yeah, credit is right. due. Mm. That has been a hidden success story. I mean, we're always hearing about, oh, God, delays and all yeah. of this. Mm. This time it has been fast-tracked. And I really do think that, you know, the experience that the whole of society and especially the, the civil service and the, the, the state agencies have gained during COVID where you had to get into emergency response mode. Mm. That's what's happening now and that's great. You know, there's bang, bang, bang. The services are getting out there. This priority is made. Uh, staff are working overtime, uh, uh, etc. But I suppose what, what I'm really saying is that 
this is an emergency, we're coping well, but we now need to bed down and when these children are still going to be in school in September, have we got a, a more sustained way to support them uh, mm. so that they actually develop the language skills, which are foundational to all learning and all social intercourse, uh, have the, to make sure that they, 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 they have these language skills right through their years. Because we, sometimes we assume we can work with a student for six months and that mm. student then seems to have good verbal language skills. But actually, if you're reading textbooks, which are quite complicated, you need to have very, very strong language skills for comprehension as well. Mm. So, so we're making the point that while, while students may develop good verbal language skills and social skills, they actually will continue to need the language support as they progress through uh, a curriculum which increases in complexity okay. year by year. And, and tell me, where are these children coming from? They're coming from a place that's a, a very long, long uh, way away. But, but where, where are they coming from in terms of the curriculum? Uh, uh, are, are they uh, coming from a place that's very far away uh, in terms of the curriculum they were following to the one that they'd be asked to follow now? Uh, well, I suppose they are in one sense. I mean, they are uh, a Central European, uh, well, far, I suppose Eastern European country, uh, and we're on the, the, the middle of the Atlantic. So, of course, the, the, the curriculum is different. But in some ways, uh, I think it's always important to remember that, the, uh, um, you know, the, the education system in, in, in most European countries, particularly in the former communist countries, would have always been on a very solid footing because the education was the, the whole building block of their economies and their regimes. So the education system uh, in, in, I mean, for example, in, in Ukraine, they would have, uh, prior to the invasion, of course, all schools are shut now, which is mm. complete tragedy after COVID. But prior to the invasion, their education system was in some ways like ours. The kids went to school for eight years at uh, um, a primary level and then up to um, five years at second level. And then uh, in, in second level, then they would diversify into either a vocational path or an academic path. So they're coming from an education system which was well established, had high standards, etc. Uh, so, uh, and they're coming into a system which thankfully has a similar model. But there is one source of support for those students um, which is really, really invaluable. And I, I think, again, it shows you what COVID has taught so many systems. Uh, the Ukrainian government has put up a portal called Ukrainian National Education Online, I think. And that is available to all, that is available to basically worldwide, to uh, all of the displaced Ukrainian students. And it is teaching the Ukrainian curriculum and the Ukrainian exams. So uh, students who come here, particularly, of course, at second level, where learning is more established and, you know, you follow uh, uh, more distinct pathways, um, these students can continue with their Ukrainian uh, um, curriculum, gra- uh, do their Ukrainian exams and have their Ukrainian certification, as well as hopefully staying within our school system and progressing and getting the leaving certificate. So, I mean, they, mm. they, they, and this is an important point to make, uh, mm-hmm. um, in a way, and it's something the psychologists have been telling us all, who we've all attended seminars on how do we respond as a system to this situation. What the psychologists are telling us is that we shouldn't just see these, these uh, Ukrainian refugees as helpless victims who, who need to be kind of, um, what's the word, cotton wool or mm. whatever. The point is that um, the, the, the making the rational decision to, to leave to protect your family, to make an arduous journey, to set up a new life. These are incredibly resilient skills to have. And that what these people, what these children and their families need 
yes, empathy and sympathy and kindness, but what they also need is to get into school, to get a home, to get a job so that they can, in a way, rebuild their lives, whether it's for the short term or for the longer term. And that, I think, is a message which... um, we, we need that, that they, you know, there, there, there are very many strengths which these children are bringing to our system. They're not just a burden on our system. Okay, well, it's a message uh, which you've relayed to us very clearly and uh, succinctly for that matter. Uh, not without... Give me the opportunity to do so. Well, it's not, important. not... Obviously, uh, 6,000 children, uh, an increase of uh, the school population on that scale is not without its challenges, but it does sound very positive in that uh, the response uh, has been, uh, as you've outlined it for us so far. And thank you indeed uh, for doing that and for joining Hopefully, us. Hopefully, when we come back to this yeah. topic again, we will be able to be equally positive. But so very far, good. it has been a very good, uh, um, genuine, whole-of-society response. Mm, brilliant. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Maura Layden, Education and Research Officer with ASTI. That's the Association of Secondary School Teachers in Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. There's an article in the Irish Independent today which I think guarantees that we're going to probably spend the week, but we're certainly going to spend a lot of time talking about affordable housing this week. And if you're a hopeful first-time buyer, you know that prices are skyrocketing. Uh, That's one reason to talk about affordable homes. It's uh, never... Uh, different I suppose Uh, and the Irish Independent reports today that there's an allocation of 60 million euro this year to deliver around 550 homes under the affordable housing scheme not a lot uh, but 60 million nonetheless. Uh, The head scratching part of this story is that it has emerged that just published regulations underpinning the scheme will allow home buyers on incomes of up to 100,000 qualify for Uh, these allocations. Let's speak uh, to Charlie Weston who has uh, the story in the Irish Independent today. Uh, I think uh, that has taken a a lot of people by surprise, Charlie. That's right, Michael. This is um, a reheated scheme that was announced when the the coalition was formed. It was originally uh, announced by um, the then uh, Housing Minister um, uh, back back a while ago, Owen Murphy, a long time ago, and it was called the Service Site Scheme. Essentially what it is is local authorities get funding to provide sites, land and services, service sites as well, so services and land to developers to then go and uh, build houses uh, you know, at, at an affordable rate. And those buying the houses to, to, to make them more, the houses more affordable that there would be uh, an equity amount provided to them, an interest-free equity amount. So very attractive. You know, you could have 50,000 plus provided by the local authority uh, as an equity amount. So, the, you know, local authority would take 50,000 euros of the, of the, the cost of the market price of the home. And, uh, you, you know, you wouldn't have to pay, pay that, any interest on that. But if you want to own the house, you'd have to pay that back eventually. And you're right. So it's been reheated now, and it's now mm. called the Affordable Housing Fund. There's 60 million being provided this year. The hope is that this year it'll deliver 550 homes. The problem is, I looked at the regulations. Uh, Owen O'Brien of Sinn Féin pointed me towards them, and there's a very complicated formula being used to work out who can who can who can qualify for it. So the the eligibility criteria are very complicated, but they are it's it's designed in such a way that people on incomes of up to a hundred thousand euros will be eligible for this affordable housing fund, which just seems 
Right. Those people could, you know, should be able to afford, even with a raging property market, mm. they should be able to afford to go out there and buy themselves. It seems like an awful lot. And, you know, is, is this telling us how crazy the market is or is it just this scheme has been designed in such a way that it's just far too generous? So yeah, well, you'd imagine a scheme like this would be available to the low earners. Uh, but you're talking about people who are earning three or four years wages in comparison to people who are on low pay. That's right, you know, um, you know, so it, it just seems like an awful lot of money. I mean, Ono Brainham Sinn Féin wants the, the income limit to be set at €85,000 uh, mm. with, yeah. with a bit of flexibility for those who, who just can't get a mortgage even with that income from a, a mainstream bank, from a lender. So, And is that a dual income? It would be, yeah, it's either a, a single income or a dual mm. income. You know, um, you're assessed basically, and, you know, the applicant is, 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 is either a couple or a or, 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 or an individual so you know, mostly that it will be couples trying to buy housing uh, and mm. you know maybe it's good good it's a good lump of a salary 100 grand so it's just it's just questionable whether yeah. a, a scheme like this which is heavily subsidized by the state you know uh, the state put, providing the land and the services on on, on on the sites and then providing an interest-free equity amount should, you know, should the criteria, the eligibility criteria to qualify, should they be that generous? I mean, that's the question. You yeah, know. so the next question, I think, is if somebody on 30,000 uh, would be able to afford one of these houses or a couple who are both on 30,000 have a joint income of 60,000 be able to afford one of these houses. Probably, um, probably not. I mean, because, you know, the first the, the first one of these schemes are seeing that, that's using this uh, funding, this affordable homes fund, is, is the O'Devany Gardens one in Dublin. Now, Dublin's always going to be more expensive than the rest of the country. But, you know, Bartra have permission for more than a thousand homes on that site. I mean, some of the homes on that mark, on that scheme are going to be 410,000 euros. So if you're on 30,000, you're not going to qualify for that, even with this scheme, which is helping you with, a, with a, a, an equity amount, interest-free equity amount, and the fact that the, the builder is getting mm. the land and getting the services provided. So, you know, I mean, it, it just seems that that scheme, is, it's, this scheme is just very badly designed. And expect a row about this in the Dáil tomorrow. Um, you know, it, there'll be questions being asked about why why design a scheme like this? Just seems bonkers. Just seems all wrong. Just it seems like it'll help developers, but um, it you know you need to be on a good whack to be able to get into the scheme. So you know maybe the the, the Darrell O'Brien, the uh, housing minister, needs to go back to the drawing board on this one and redesign it because it just seems all wrong. Okay, um, the next question. Uh, does does all of this mean that if uh, you're on 30,000 or a couple uh, joint income of 60,000, does it, it, it mean that you'll never be able to afford to buy a house? Well, at the moment, until supply starts improving, in the next 10 minutes, we'll have figures, new figures from the Central Statistics Office on the latest, you know, the March uh, property price index. So we'll know how much prices have gone up again. I mean, the last figures we we, 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 we had... Uh, was for February and prices were up 15%. We're very closely back to the Celtic Tiger crazy price levels. So, you know, you need to be on an extraordinary income at the moment to, to be able to buy a house because mm. there's so few of them out there to, for sale. You know, people are chasing down properties and uh, bidding and outbidding each other. So, you know, sometimes with people with very good incomes are finding that you just can't get in on the property market so so little available. And that's why we're seeing the, the, the prices raging at, at a ridiculous rate. 15% increases are just crazy mm. increases. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. It calls into question what is affordable. And if you're defining something as affordable and if it's unaffordable, it seems to be a bizarre situation. It certainly is. You know, I mean, 
what is affordable exactly? I mean, affordable it really should be a, a, a multiple of the average income, which would mean you know prices should be much lower. Uh, you know, a lot of people think you know this can't be sustained; the prices mm. won't stay like this. But yeah, I'm not so sure because mm. you know the, the, there is such a chronic shortage of property. The last time we had a crazy prices property tax bubble. Uh, there were loads of houses being built, but credit was just crazy. People were just being given money willy nilly. Now you're very much restricted in what you can borrow. So you know yeah. that, that that means that people shouldn't overextend themselves. It just means that people can't get in to buy, and that's why prices will just keep rising for now. I think. As I said at the opening, I am absolutely certain that your article in the Irish Independent today is going to start a very heated debate over the course of uh, this week. Thank you indeed for joining us, Charlie Weston, personal finance editor with the Irish Independent. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.